if we could, even right now, plant that seed of how important silence is, I will say potentially for the next level of our own evolution. And maybe that's becoming more and more clear to people as the dissonance and the, the incoherence uh, become louder and louder and louder. It's like, a, you know, this cacophony of noise at this point. And right, that's the key to remote viewing. You gotta sort the signal from the noise. And, and yeah, so maybe we'll just plant a seed in this conversation that that the primacy of, of silence, because from there you can start to hear the signals and get drawn to alignment with the authentic self, if you will, if I could use that term. Um, and yeah, I think our culture is screaming for it. Right, really, like through the noise, it's screaming, or through the mental health crisis, it's 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 screaming, or the opioid crisis, um, you know, the political discord. You could you can point to it almost at every turn. Welcome to the Rational Mystic Podcast. I'm your host James Webb, and today I'm very happy to share with you my recent conversation with Dr. Leanne Whitney. Dr. Whitney is an author and a scholar. She is a Jungian psychologist and a longtime yoga practitioner, as well as a coach with a focus on personal transformation. And in these set of conversations, that diverse background, that extensive knowledge comes to bear on the concept of psycho-spiritual systems and how we can, uh, in the West, adopt and adapt many of the yogic practices and yoga core philosophy particularly as are articulated by Pantanjali in the Yoga Sutras, into our own lives, both to better ourselves, but also our families and our communities, and more broadly speaking, and optimistically, the world. So I found Dr. Whitney to be an exceptionally wise human being, such a warm uh, personality, and someone so willing to share information freely. And so I really enjoyed these conversations, and I hope you all do as well. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you um, you joining me and, and uh, having an opportunity to speak to you about your work and your experiences. Um, I have to say, I was talking a little bit before we hit the record button, but you wrote this most amazing book. As I started to kind of uh, find my own path, you, uh, you come across books that really uh, speak to you and feel important. And you had a book that you wrote, I think it was your doctoral dissertation about consciousness and Pantanjali and with Young. And I think that in looking at that book, you have kind of a very narrow section where you begin to start talking about your own experiences and what led you to uh, begin that book and, and to start your own journey. And I think it's just a few paragraphs, but I know the experience, if you unfold, it's probably a, a lot longer. But I think you talked in that uh, in the book about having what you termed as a pure consciousness experience. And is that is that kind of what started you down down this road with your your scholarship? 
It, it absolutely was, yes. In, in the religious studies literature, it's called a pure consciousness event. Uh, it was literally about a fraction of a second or, you know, very, very short period of time. I had just uh, finished practicing yoga. I had been in a yoga class and, um, uh, yeah, my awareness went into this non-dual state of what I term pure consciousness and then what I subsequently realized was called a pure consciousness event where basically everything is um reality reality is pure consciousness and that's the reality of being and knowledge is structured in it and from there it, it uh, i didn't really know how to process it because from a dualistic mindset or the euro-american culture that i grew up in uh pure consciousness a had never understood even um that idea uh, and I came from Catholicism was my background. So I had very dualistic ideas, basically dualistic religious ideas, dualistic scientific ideas. Um, so consciousness is all there is and knowledge is structured in it is not something that I could really put into any framework that I knew. Um, but luckily, again, I was in a yoga room at the time of the event, and and from there, I discovered the Tibetan Book of the Dead and and Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and and the um, Orthodox and non-Orthodox uh, Hindu system of thought gave me a context. Thank, thankfully, uh, those Indian systems of thought gave me a, a context within which to start to begin to process and understand on a deeper level. And boy, it's been. 20 plus years at this point and what a journey it's been so <laughs> it's, it's not a journey in a straight line either right it's a, it's a journey it's a, it's a curved road now oh. when you when you uh when you had that experience i think maybe you alluded to in the book that you didn't even know perhaps that, that those kind of experiences like a unitive experience was a thing that you were just beginning to start some of your yoga practice how long you been had you been doing yoga and is, was that was that something you were seeking or just kind of come you know uh just out of out of sight suddenly into your world oh yeah i hadn't studied the philosophy or the psychology or anything so that's yeah why i didn't have the context for it i wasn't i wasn't seeking it in any way um i had gone through a bit of a health crisis actually in the, the mid 90s and it was around 98 when I began practicing yoga back in those days, we had DVDs and I remember picking one up at uh, a Whole Foods market um, in Boston. And then I, I was also living in New York a little bit and there was a studio called Jiva Mukti, not very far from where I was living. So I showed up for healing, basically. I didn't feel good and um, I saw these DVDs at Whole Foods. I think also a healing practitioner had said, oh, you should try yoga and breathing practices. So that's how I started to get into it, to feel better. And then um, I had this event in this yoga room. That was in July of 2000. So sporadically between 98 and 2000, I practiced. Come 2000, actually, I had a dedicated six-day-a-week practice. But still, I'd never been exposed in any way to the philosophical or psychological underpinnings of the yoga tradition. And, you know, here in the, in the States, a lot of times we teach the asana as if the asana almost was like the totality when really it's just it's one limb of a very uh, deep and profound system of thought. So, yeah, I hadn't yet been exposed to it, but 
certainly did after that event. I think you touched upon an important point for a lot of folks who may not be familiar with the depth of yoga philosophy. So when you speak about yoga, you're using it in a very different term sometimes than maybe many people encounter it if you look at it commercially uh, with some of the offerings that are out there. So when when you look at uh, yoga and some of the practices uh, and the intersection point with the underlying f- uh, philosophy of yoga, you're, you're talking about a much broader totality. And I have to say, reading your book, uh, I read a little bit, but understanding the complexity, I think you talk about yoga as a, as a real science uh, and looking at the complexity of some of the concepts, the intersection of the concepts. So is that something you could elaborate a little bit on? Sure. Um, first of all, yeah, yoga is the philosophy of union, philosophy of integration. Uh, and it's, you know, thousands of years old. It's It predates even the Buddha and some of the Pali canon. canon. There's some texts that say the Buddha was a yogi. So these are practices that have been around for thousands of years. Um, in India, the term is rishis for the seers. Uh, they wrote the Rig Veda. And again, nobody signed their name to it. Uh, that's also, for me, very profound about those texts is that there's there's no name. Nobody was, everybody knew better, I should say, than to sort of hang on with their ego and, and claim to this knowledge that, as I'm saying, it's structured in consciousness. So to take ownership of it actually starts to occlude your capacity to even be present in it or to it, or perhaps we could say speak for it or speak within it. Um, so yes, yoga as a totality is the philosophy of union, the philosophy of integration. The asanas are amazing limb and aspect of the practice uh, to get on our yoga mat and to breathe and to link our breath uh, with our movements and to still the mind and to open up the channels of the body uh, really prepares us to uh, receive this totality and this unity. So the asanas are really um, uh, strong as is, there's actually nothing in the yoga tradition ultimately that's superfluous. It's all really tightly knit, woven, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, uh, system of thought. So the asanas um, definitely hold an important place, but to it must be kept within the whole system. If you try to just pull it out, it becomes calisthenics and uh, it really is no longer relatable to to its home base. So you have this this unitive experience, and you know the temptation I think when people hear about this is we go, what was it really like? <laughs> and you know I think that's the uh, you're talking about some of the experiences you had. You can kind of describe them, but it's not exactly, of course, the same thing as as experiencing it, being in that moment. Um, but from that, had had you studied psychology at that point in your academic career? Was that something that was already kind of in your background and, and your um, the way you were thinking about things? Or was that something that, that kind of followed for you after having this, this unitive experience? Oh, it followed after. So in July of 2000, I was in the middle of making uh, my first documentary called The Fire Within about a long-term AIDS survivor. Uh, I was in right in the middle of production of that, uh, uh, of still filming it. Um, and as I edited that film and put it together, um, I decided that I was going to make my next film on the evolution of human consciousness. And I went about uh, 
filming that, I, I, I had interviews with uh, Gary Zukoff, author of Seat of the Soul, Jeff Mishlove, host of New Thinking Aloud, an author of PK Man, um, Russell Targ, uh, boy, legacy in, in, in the field of remote viewing and, and uh, psychic phenomena. Um, so yeah, I went about interviewing people. I went to Egypt and, and, and Peru and filmed um, in various spiritual sites. But I found in the editing phase, I really couldn't put it together. Like there was, I couldn't get to the third act. Um, and that's what led me into the academy and to start investigating consciousness. Actually, it was Jeff Mishlove who said to me, boy, you are taking on a massive topic to try to make a film about the evolution of human consciousness. Uh, but I was a bit of a novice at that point. But that's what sent me into the academy to then do research and really ground myself into, you know, it, it, like yoga, this kind of work is both a science and an art actually, you know, because you mentioned, you said the science of yoga. Well, it's not really science as, as a lot of Euro-Americans would consider science with this hard objective, you know, demarcation between the subject and object. Uh, yoga science is radically empirical. It's about the involution of thought forms. So you are um, at one with this idea, this reality of pure consciousness, but it's pure awareness. So then the phenomena, if you will, take on, I don't want to say a different state, but a different tone or texture or, you know, radical objective reality. Uh, it can be seen to have its place, but then it's also put into a context of a much larger uh, you know, where that cut lies, and that's where quantum physics sort of comes in and tries to articulate the language for, we don't even know where the cut lies between the subject and the object. So yoga science is very, very well aware of that, whereas we're kind of still struggling, right, to put uh, classical physics and quantum physics in dialogue with each other. Um, so anyway, the academy sort of, yeah, brought me down all those rabbit holes and, and looking into so many different um, systems of thought but mostly psychology is, is yeah i love your book but knowing that you had started that document documentary it's like okay we got to get our energy that's that's an amazing uh amazing that you had done that so um well i know in, in your in your book and in some of your work that you articulated there you really get a sense so talking about depth psychology and talking about young and um your book is it it runs from talking about quantum physics and the holographic universe to really bridging these ideas about depth psychology and Jungian's idea of self with these ancient traditions of, of Pantanjali. So it's kind of hard. Your, your, uh, your scholarship across this book to me was just incredibly impressive. And I think I share with you from the beginning, all of the Sanskrit terms that you, that you use and that you know, I'll mispronounce every single one of them. So <laughs> if there's any philologists, see if you pronounce that, you, you look at this, um, I'm going to try that. Um, but look, your, uh, your motivation for, seems like you had felt that that and in your book, I know you touch upon what seems to be in your perception that, that some areas were young from his own cultural upbringing. You talk about lenses and the per perception uh, that young inherited in kind of a Victorian era and, and that time period. Um, and then how maybe some of his own fear had played into that. And, and so it really seems in your book that you're trying to look at this really critical bridge to try to bring together these ancient traditions, our, our scientific approach that we have right now with really, I think you call them psycho-spiritual systems, but you're trying to look at this integrative approach. So 
Um, it seems like I know you talk about the documentary being a massive undertaking, but I really look at your book as this really it's it's incredibly impressive to me, the scope and scale of what you seem to be trying to achieve with that. So it, did I get that right? Is that kind of I know it's hard to summarize things in broad brushstrokes, but when you looked at this experience and your motivation for bringing together the book, what was in the back of your mind? What were you thinking about? Oh, I love that you use the term critical bridge. Um, well, when I was in the academy itself is what prompted the seed for the book. So here I am again, if we predate the academy and I'm, I'm trying to make this movie and I don't know how to make the third act and, 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 you know, I go down this rabbit hole, if you will, uh, there's hornet's nest of these arguments in the field of consciousness studies because it's being approached from so many different points of view or through the lens of so many different disciplines. Um, and Jung was, uh, we're talking about Carl Jung here, um, Swiss psychologist. Uh, he was one of the original pioneers way back in, what was it, you know, 1925, 1930, uh, um, reading the texts as those initial translations were coming out of India, out of China. Um, and he, he, said you know there's something here like we have to look at this basically um and so he did his best to, to look at these texts and but in many ways he he used his he well he definitely used his framework i mean really as we all do but he psychologized the texts in some ways uh and sort of forced that forced them to fit into his psychology as he was seeing it um and look i i, lo I love jung and i revere the tradition and i'm happy to be part of the depth psychological tradition but I think it's, uh, we must, we must be critical of, of, you know, where things break down within their tradition. And so I've tried to do that. Um, not too much success, I must say, because uh, people de tend to want to elevate Jung as, as the master. And at that point, at this point, I mean, it, I find it to be really constricting. So it's also, I don't know if you can even hear it in the way that I try to articulate it, because it's not that I, I chose him because I revered him. After I had that pure consciousness event in 2000, somebody, my best friend actually, Actually had given me Memories, Dreams, Reflections, which was Jung's autobiography, where he was clearly having deep spiritual experiences. So as I was trying to digest uh, my experience, you know, and I was so grateful to come into the yoga philosophy and the yoga text, and I was reading Jung simultaneously. Like I was reading, I, reading I like that. I your hand gesture. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd pick up a volume of the collected works, and then I'd read the Yoga Sutras again, and I'd pick up a volume of the collected works and read the Yoga Sutras again. And at some point, after years, I was like, "Whoa, you know what Jung thinks is." is uh, um, that his self equates to the Atman of the yoga tradition, it doesn't map it, it, because pure consciousness is the reality of being. It's the ontological primitive as it's, as it's, as it's often said. It's, um, and again, the knowledge is structured in it, whereas Jung's psychology resolves to um, 
human beings bringing light to mere being, human beings bringing knowledge to God. So the Jung's unconscious is is real, ontologically real, and that that absolutely does not equate to what the Orthodox Indian tradition is teaching the world. You know, they're saying no, consciousness is all there is. Like that is what everything is existing within. That is reality. That is a closed system, so to speak. Not that there isn't free will within it, right? Not to say that everything's determined, but it ontologically is determined by itself. And uh, yeah, Young Young didn't uh, speak to that. For him, human beings were bringing consciousness to God. So. I know that um, I think you pointed this out just beautifully in your book, but you talk about uh, the yoga sutras themselves and Pantanjali's work. I think you talk about in the second sutra. I mean, it's master uh, being succinct about anything is masterful. And so I think you talk about, you know, in the second sutra, Pantanjali basically lays out almost the entire edifice of his philosophical framework. And then um, we have a series of sutras that proceed from there. But for those who aren't familiar with at least some of the, the, the fundamental um, aspects when we talk about universal consciousness, and I think you really touch a lot upon some conceptions of both authenticity and alignment. Um, and also, uh, I know what we contemporarily we call healing processes. But when you look at um, some of the, uh, I don't know how far you want to, to dive into this, because I know the depth of the, a little bit of the depth of the scholarship from your work. But for those who aren't familiar with that, that frame, when we talk about contrasting that with maybe Young's uh, approach, what, what would be your way of, of trying to, to help them orient a little bit? Great question. Um, so pure consciousness, the reality of being, if we look at the purity of that, it's where he down, where let's just say here at the plane of all possibilities, right? So it's just pure consciousness, anything's possible. All possibilities are here. And then we clearly, as human beings, we have a mental world and we start to take the contents of consciousness, right? The phenomena, the thoughts, the emotions, the objects out there, and we start to build systems of thought. So here's the plane of possibilities. And then you've got a silo starting to be constructed around um your perceptions, but what you start to conceive that to be. Uh, so like Jung saying human beings are bringing, you know, light into mere being or, or into the darkness of mere being or bringing, um, you know, consciousness to God. It's because it's he, he's got them constructing the thought, constructing the knowledge, building the libraries. You know, we're going to figure it out. It, it's very cognitive. It's very linguistic. So I, you're I think you referred to that as, as kind of like an egoic knowledge uh, at one point was maybe a, a term that you would use. I, I, you could say that because we're, you're you're hanging on to it. This is what I was trying to allude to earlier uh, with uh, Shruti or the the, the Rishi, the seers, and, and uh, their intuitive perception of knowledge, and they're not saying, signing their name to it because ultimately they're like, well, I, who's going to take ownership of this? You you know, this is knowledge that's coming through intuitively. Um, so I can't take ownership because it's not mine. Whereas, right, all our library books and everybody's like, you know, and again, that even happens within the, the Jungian framework to begin with. 
and that's why Jung gets built up as as the master. So any system like that that get, really gets built up and constructed, and you have, hold on to your identity, and um, but again, to 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 always to come back to to uh, make sure I balance that out. You know, Jung, Jung was known for saying, "I'm so glad I'm young and not a Jungian," because he could already see what was ha what was going to probably mm. happen. That's um, yeah, post, you know, him disincarnating. So, um, yeah, I hope I'm answering you. So, so it's the plane of possibilities. And then we we build up these silos and we hang on to these particular systems of thought. Um, whereas um, what Patanjali is saying, and in that second Yoga Sutra, he says, and we can leave this Sanskrit aside. Uh, he says yoga, <laughs> yoga is the stilling of the modifications of the mind. So again, with the mentation and the modification, you're building up this silo. And Patanjali is saying, well, because really the Yoga Sutras are built or built are written to instruct a way of salvation from suffering. Mm. It's really pointed, hey, yoga is union. It's the philosophy of integration. So what Patanjali is teaching, he's not teaching the masters. He's teaching people who are out of that flow of integration. Somehow they've, as we would say in interpersonal neurobiology, they've banked up on the on the side. Uh, you know, if, if the river of integration is here, they, you bank up on, on rigidity or chaos. And that's how Patanjali is speaking to those people who, who are banked up on rigidity or chaos, who are in patterns of suffering. So he's like, okay, your pattern of suffering, it means you must be up here in a silo, that you're not down here with pure consciousness and this pure awareness, this seeing, the seeing that sees the contents, the seeing that sees the scene, right? If we take the seer and the scene, or the just pure seeing, and so he says, still, still what you've got twirling around as this pattern of thought, if you can still that in involute it and take it right back down to the plane of possibilities. Now you're at the seer. Now you're, you're not in the scene. You're not wound up in these contents. You're here with the seer. And that's what's amazing about that system of thought it is, and, and I do understand that faith is a, important part of following the path like you have to have trust that what patanjali is saying plays out really because you deconstruct all that and what he's saying is you don't go into a void of nothingness now you're going to be aligned with your true nature now you're you're going to be relaxed you're going to take a seat beyond the duality you're going to take a comfortable seat in your body your breath and your mind are going to be linked and that's the that's the beauty of of stilling. He's saying still the mind. Silence is okay. Silence is your friend, and silence. Um, and this is what's so genius about the unity, and how yoga brings this to light. Is yeah, we can only take a comfortable seat when that fear has resolved. We're not afraid anymore. We can. You know, you can breathe. Your system is flowing. You can get breath down into your gut, into your lungs. And then, because fear is doing nothing but throwing interference patterns between us and our experience of the world, which I'm sure I you know. You, 
your remote viewing teachings. Yeah, I, I'd love, I'd love to, to, to ask you some questions about that, of course. Um, uh, you, your book touched on a lot of the, uh, the elements, I guess, the, the salvation elements that are, and the commonality. Um, of course, um, the cities are a whole other interesting conversation. Um, and, uh, and how they're oriented. But I want to go back to what you just talked about, because there's so much to unpack, uh, and there's so much wisdom in that. But you, um, you, you talk a lot in your, in your text about Pantangeli's methodologies and thought process, and you call it the, the involution of, of thought, like go, taking thought back to its source. And so when you talk about that, when, you know, what, what do you mean in terms of, of practice or, or um, you know, actual structure around that that Pantangeli would be speaking to for us? Well, definitely breath work, I would say, is key, and especially for people in like Euro-American culture, um, because what the breath work does, and that's pranayama, that's that's the Sanskrit term, and that's one of the limbs, one of Patanjali's eight limbs is that pranayama. Uh, those breath work practices are primary, because a lot of people sit and they try to meditate, and then they're like, oh, my mind is like, you know, all over the place, and oh my God, I can't meditate, and um, you, you, you do want to make sure that you have good, what we call good vagal tone in particular, the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve. It's such an important, you know, it runs from the cranium all through around our heart and all the way down to our gut. You want to make sure that though, that, that the, the vagus nerve and, um, the nadis, the nerves in the body have good tone and the breath work brings that about. And that brings a, a level of comfort to taking a seat in order to sit and meditate. And, um, oh boy, potentially gives so many suggestions and one of them being even pick your own thing. Like here, I'm going to give you, like he, he teaches people to focus on um Ishvara, which is the, the term basically for almost like you could call it like a personal God or, or, or yeah, it's very similar to Jung's archetype uh, it, it, in some ways. There's some similarities there. Um, uh, basically, it's the teacher that's taught all the ancient teachers, even uh, the Buddhas. So it's basically focusing on Ishvara. But you pick a focal point and uh, you meditate on that point and so you you calm what ch chittavritti is the term in 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 Sanskrit, but um, and I often like to say it this way. So if this is the con this is pure consciousness sitting in its true nature. You know, here's the mind going off wildly, and and so through the concentration and the meditation and the absorption, you start to still those fluctuations. And you know, so if they're out here around a different system of thought through the stilling, they come and they get absorbed back into uh, that out of which they arose, which is pure consciousness. And I, I can cheat a little bit because when you pronounce things that I can try to emulate you and sound like I know how to pronounce them. But the um, when you talk about, is it Vridis? Is that how Vridis. you? Vridis. Mm -hmm. You almost have this idea of these, these discursive, these, the narrative thought, you know, the, um, the constant discursive thought you sometimes have. And in that stilling process, what it reminds me of looking at your work is when we talk about, um, you know, I've had several folks on to talk about psychic work. And one of the key aspects for doing any kind of psychic work is that that stilling. It's, it's this very different process, very different mindset where you start to learn very early on that that um, whether or not someone told that you're meditating, <laughs> but you realize that your um, ability to engage 
some of these um, psychic abilities or psi abilities or however we want to articulate them is very dependent on that 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 quality of consciousness and a certain kind of feeling. And it's hard sometimes to articulate that feeling. So when I was reading um, and you're talking, you're talking about that aspect of sort of the, the stealing of, of the Viridis, it really made me think about about what that means. Um, and, uh, you know, when I first came across this, it was, it was amazing to me just by, calm, you know, what is the what is the benefit of calming one's mind? And I don't think people quite realize how incredibly powerful just the fundamental skill of a very basic thing of being able to calm your mind is. Um, hundred percent. I mean, uh, our culture doesn't really encourage it. I mean, even if you look at just boy, over the course of my lifetime, the amount of TV channels, the amount of media, the podcasts, YouTube, I mean, here we are <laughs> recording something on YouTube. Um, but yeah, our mind is, and that could speak to the mental health crisis. Our minds are fractured. The attention economy, we call it now. My, people's minds are going in a, almost, a, you know, dozens of directions all at one time. Um, if we could, even right now, plant that seed of how important silence is, I will say potentially for the next level of our own evolution and maybe that's becoming more and more clear to people as the dissonance and the, the incoherence uh become louder and louder and louder it's like a, you know this cacophony of noise at this point and right that's the key to remote viewing you gotta sort the signal from the noise and, and yeah, so maybe we'll just plant a seed in this conversation that that the primacy of, of silence, because from there you can start to hear the signals and get drawn to alignment with the authentic self, if you will, if I could use that term. Um, and yeah, I think our culture is screaming for it. Right, really, like through the noise, it's screaming, or through the mental health crisis, it's 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 screaming, or the opioid crisis, um, you know, the political discord. You could you can point to it almost at every turn. Yeah, I think in your book you talk about the commonality of these these symptoms of of pain and suffering that both Young and Pentangeli speak about. So um, a disruption in breathing, um, feeling emotional anguish, you know, all these. Red, I think you call them red flags, that they're red flags, something's going on that you need to be paying attention to. And, you know, sometimes uh, people might see these things emerge or these feelings and not really even understand what the origin point of that is at all. But you extrapolate up from the individual to our cultural level and to your point that you made. I mean, we, they seem like there's so many, uh, not not for us to, to fall into pessimism. We're not going to do that. But there's so many. But uh, I know in some conversations with you that, um, we really talk about, you know, where do we go from here? It's clear that we've got a lot of science behind us. Uh, I saw today that they're uh, introducing all these augmented reality, you know, more ways to distract ourselves and go into this different kind of world. Um, but we don't seem to necessarily be all having conversations about some of these uh, fundamental aspects of of what it means to be healthy and how we cultivate. And that, your, your articulation that you used, Leanne, I think in the book was talking about a new psycho-spiritual system. And I have to wonder, so, you know, we look at where we are in the West. And when I was reading your book, I was thinking, wow, really your focus on Young is talking so much about our inheritance that we've had, right? Growing up in our dualistic, materialistic society. And 
you know, our path forward, can it, can, can we just adopt yoga? You know, are people going to do that and just say, well, this is brilliant and this is genius. Um, do we need to rebrand it in something or do we need to take some of these aspects of our Western identity that we have and somehow infuse those in a new way? And so when I was reading your book, I really felt that there was that question in there that, which is a, is an incredibly powerful question. I just, um, am I, am I perceiving that right somewhat in your, in your thought process? I, I think I'm hearing, um, some of your thoughts around, you know, how, how do we save ourselves? We've, we've got some, got some issues here. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I am not pessimistic myself. And I do think also with the web, you know, like any tool that can be used for good or for bad, you know, and it's brilliant that, you know, we can communicate to, to the whole world in the blink of an eye, um, you know, or the online world in the blink of an eye, which is, you know, pretty incredible. We can be communicating to each other uh, so quickly and broadly these days. Um, Western science is a tool. And um, I love Dr. Lisa Miller, who runs a lab at Columbia University. And, and she's basically, um, I guess, mapped, if you will, um, the neural correlates of transcendent awareness. That wasn't around in Jung's day. And Jung was all about the religious function of the psyche. So as, as, as a Jungian or depth psychologist, I get very excited about looking at that kind of research. You know, she's really clear. Science is a tool and this. It's how we show up as scientists and what questions we pose. That's the kind of results we're going to get in a lab. You know, in her neural correlates of transcendent awareness show that, you know, the flip side of that coin is depression, addiction. So you you want to have your religious practices, your spiritual practices. It's not about the religion. It's about the practices. It's about the gratitude. It's about the, the prayer or the meditation or whatever it is within your system. But it's the actual um, that would be the yoking, the connecting, the the the, the line between you and whatever terms you want to use there, higher awareness, source, God, goddess, the term really doesn't matter. It's not the term, it's the relationship. The mind is embodied and it is relational and it's relational, you know, to us, each other, to the, 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 the world. And again, through the yoga system of thought, well, what is reality? It's pure consciousness. So with my system, how, how am I relating basically? Um, and again, I think uh, Dr. Miller's research really shows that, um, you know, through prayer and through that kind of connection, that's how you um, keep depression at bay or, 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 or addiction. So I, I think this, we can get there in the lab, really. You know, I, I, maybe, I don't even know if I thought that when I wrote that book, only whatever that was, eight years ago, six, seven, eight years ago. I know it was only published in 2018, but I really started writing it in 2015. Um, but now, um, you know, she, Dr. Miller really excited me for sure. And, and, and I do, and effective neuroscience continues to excite me and the work they're doing with primary process emotions and uh, showing that consciousness is sub subcortical. It's, it's in the emotional systems of the brain, the limbic system. And I mean, if that's not a nudge to, you know, that it's not all sitting in the cortex and sitting in this constructed system of thought. It's like, it's, it's affect, it's coming out of the brainstem. And, and um, to me, that's all exciting. And as long as we, uh, 
you know, yeah, interpret correctly or pose the right questions, we can really use our science to keep aiming us uh, towards uh, what I like to call authentic power. That's a term Gary Zukov introduced years ago in, in uh, his book, The Seed of the Soul. Um, authentic power because it's the power that's coming from pure consciousness ultimately, not through a cultural construct of me and you and us and them and you know, this religion or that religion or this nationality and that. It's like, no, we're one human species and we are sentient amidst a plethora of sentient beings on a very um, wise and informative earth. <laughs> so I have to ask you, because uh, I've seen interesting discussions emerge about this. And it's one of these questions, it's, it's not a fair question for either of us, it's kind of out there, right? But you talk, uh, talking about a multiplicity of, of beings under this, this idea of what consciousness is and where we stand potentially with consciousness studies. But some people have really posited this question about as we look at the emergence of artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of, uh, even the people who are creating these systems are finding that the systems themselves are, they're behaviorally doing things that are often very opaque because of the complexity of it. As you look at Pantanjali in your own studies, you know, with this idea that, that there is a, a wellspring of consciousness in which everything is arising from, would it be such a radical thing for us? You know, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. My initial thought when you talk about consciousness in some of these systems is uh, to kind of put that on the other side of a partition a little bit. It feels, makes me a little uneasy, to be honest with you. But what are your thoughts when we look at, uh, you know, are, can we really draw the lines of where we believe consciousness originates and where it doesn't originate? And uh, is that even a right way to look at it? Well, uh, back to the Sanskrit, and please, I would not have the best accent. So anybody out there listening. <laughs> You're trying to make me feel better. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, no, I definitely not. Um, but uh, I believe the term is a jati vata or is it jati vata, um, non-origination, right? So it's eternal and absolute again that ontological primitive is eternal and absolute so so you can maybe find you know ish to some degree you know the beginning and end point let's just say of the body of of a leanne whitney or something um but ultimately you know that system of thought also has past lives and so Really, no, I don't think you would find uh, an origination point, certainly not um, ontologically. No. Did I answer the question? Is that where you, you I, I, thought, I thought you were going to actually ask. <laughs> I was jumping ahead. I thought you were going to ask about AI or something like will AI, well, is AI going to be conscious or? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, there are already people who are having some of those discussions about um, is it feasible that AI could be emergent at some point, that, that, that consciousness, without a full understanding of, of what's requisite for the emergence of consciousness? And it seems to me like, um, in looking at your work and, and my layman's understanding of anything, but this, it seems to me in Pantanjali and some of these, that there's this panpsychism, that this idea that consciousness permeates absolutely everything. It's, you know, it's uh, from your car, right, to your house. So, you know, when people hear these these ideas or feel some of this, um, you know, hear people talking about artificial intelligence and consciousness, is there a line of delineation that really is defensible from the perception of of uh, of broader reality? 
now this is what I, I think you're asking. I, <laughs> I believe, again, pure consciousness sits in itself. There is no other. AI is being generated by human beings. There's a, artificial is there for a reason. There is a coherence. Pure consciousness and the reality of that, it's a very logically consistent, self-defined, um, self-organizing, I don't know if I want to say structure, let's just play with these terms for a minute here. Um, but I, I do want to stick with this idea of coherence and incoherence. Or like where in, in Jungian terms, we look at archetypes and in like the shadow archetype or, you know, um, evil, right, is, is live backwards. Mm. It, it's, it's in Patanjali in his third chapter, once one has mastered concentration, meditation, absorption, one of my favorite sutras, he says, by concentration, meditation, absorption into the heart center, you will come to know the mind. We are given a logically consistent, coherent system of apprehension. And when we split from our heart and we split from the mind body, I think before, therefore I am. No, maybe it's I feel, therefore I am. I intuit, therefore I am. When we, when we split these things off from which ultimately cannot be split, they ultimately cannot be split. You know, there can be dissociation, if you will. But because, again, pure consciousness is the base of, of, of everything that flourishes from it, they can ultimately also be linked hmm. again. So they never get so far where they're torn because it's non-dual. There is no other. Nothing can ever be outside of reality. It's still all folded within reality. So it can get strained. And I guess you could say that's exactly where we are right now. We're at this incredible place of strain. But when we do these practices, study these texts, combination of both, you really see, wow, this thing is, I mean, this thing is rotating, like the earth, right? She's on her axis and she's rotating around the sun. Like there is a coherence and evil or the, the shadow side of things really falls into what would be the incoherent category, which ends up being the noise. Interesting. And the more we learn how to differentiate the signal from the noise or the coherent from the incoherent, we are going to be living this thing as human beings in a, in a, in a, I want to say a totally different way, or maybe going back to how we were living it, you know, thousands of years ago, or maybe where some cultures do live it today. Cause really I can only speak from the Euro American culture where I live. Um, but, if so, if AI, in other words, is not a tool that's going to serve coherence, it would possibly kill us because now we're in this incoherent loop. We're up in one of those silos mm. where we think that we have primacy over nature, that we can that we could build something so artificial when in fact it's the apple and the banana and the pure water that makes our system run. You can't just all of a sudden cut out, you know, the nutrients that make the human being 
work and then go into this whole artificial schema. That's what I would say. That, that, service, that would service to coherence is a fascinating concept. That's really interesting the way you did, the way that you look at that. It made me think of like entropy and some of the, the conceptions of of how how coherent systems you know can break down and or be or uh, or you know when energy comes in the system how that coherence can increase. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to to ask you about a little bit is I, I know you also your work is broad and you um, in addition to your scholarship. You provide a lot of um, counseling and therapy services, people who are going through um, different sorts of challenges and looking at transformation and personal growth. And I also know that you um, have been an advocate of looking at psychedelics as part of, um, I would think, probably a, a practice that, that's really well thought out and you know, how those can uh, assist people. And I'm curious on your thoughts of, um, of, I know that there's a million and one people talking about the, the benefits of psychedelics and a lot of fascinating studies that are really reflecting that. But in your own practice, when you talk about um, psycho-spiritual systems and how are you seeing some of those benefits be manifest for people that, that you're assisting? And what do you think are some maybe good ways to approach that? Or, or, and, and the converse, are there ways that really are, are not well-informed and maybe um, a little bit uh, hazardous or dangerous? Oh, undoubtedly that latter, uh, which is why MAPS, the organization MAPS, um, and uh, probably John Hopkins, I mean, probably in all the literature, you're going to find how important set and setting are. Because uh, most of the people who call me are call me because they had really challenging experiences. And... Um, they're looking for guidance to interpret it and, and find their way to the other side of it. So, oh, for sure, set and setting are so important to use of this medicine in a sacred healing way. You know, obviously, any kind of medicine can be used right out at clubs or right or abused or for different reasons. But if if people are seeking to take, in in, in particular, psilocybin is is the drug I favor um set and setting is is really really important to that endeavor um i'll speak to my own personal experience uh also experiences i've seen people go through uh what the medicine did for me and again i've seen it do for other people so i had the pure consciousness event um but i was still not Sitting in my body, and though I was practicing yoga and meditation, um, and it's interesting for me because these things all—the first time I ever did uh, psilocybin was in 2003. I had that pure consciousness event in 2000, so it's not like years went by and I was meditating or whatever. These things are sort of—they all wove together for me. Um, but when I really realized that I could receive the medicine on a really deep, what do I want to, visceral, the, the way it opened my heart and the way it, it uh, made my body feel. Um, now, maybe somebody's going to get that after a yoga practice of however long, but it just sort of... Uh, accelerated that f for me. And again, I don't, I don't, there's no recipe here, you know, and that's something Jung would say, like, you can't, there's no way to designate this in the form of a recipe. Everybody's path is going to be different for me. 
Um, but I have subsequently worked with people and guided them, especially if, if people like struggle with um, a bond with their primary caregiver or, you know, with their, with their mom, um, that this medicine can really hold you and take you into a space uh, of love and uh, profound healing and, and yeah, feeling that kind of unity and love in your body. It's interesting to me. I think I shared the first time I met um, you and I ever met. I had my own. I had a, um, I guess, a unity of experience after I had begun to have some experiences of psychic functioning, and I began to <laughs> have unusual thoughts that one rarely has. Like, what is the nature of time? <laughs> and you start to kind of look around at the world that you've seen before, and you look at it with a little bit of. Uh, for me, it was like this funny suspicion. Like, here, here's a thing presented to me, and I'm not sure that the game's running the way I think it is, right? Uh, and that that weird thought process led me to, uh, you know, I think you shared with you like a a very uh, unusual experience, and I've only had it once. And so I talked to a lot of my friends who are on the path who have revisited that wonderful place that I would love to get back to. But do you think you talk about acceleration? So when we talk about the trajectory of humanity and, and us trying to broaden our understanding about who we truly are and, and service to that coherence and service to the, to the world as large, do you think that maybe when we talk about psychedelic medicines, that maybe it has a real potential to help us move parts of uh, particularly people maybe in the West towards a position to at least begin to have a totally different perception about where the boundary lines of reality begin and, and end. Well, again, if reality is the total, I don't know that you would put a, a, a boundary on reality as pure consciousness, but certainly as the conceptions of reality, or, or and you might be speaking to levels of it. Um, I, I definitely think now is the time, like it's so exciting to me, it's just as a person, as a, you know, as a healing arts practitioner, that this, uh, the moment has come where there's this real resurgence of psychedelic medicine. And again, I will, I don't want to speak for all of them. I have worked with a few of them. Um, and again, maybe every medicine isn't for every person. So, but uh, yes, I absolutely feel, especially psilocybin, um, they do hold great promise a great opportunity. Let's put it that way. You know, there's a reason why we have the receptors in our brain for this medicine. So, um, you know, it's beautiful if we, uh, yeah, engage in with it in a relational way and a real, um, with reverence. I was reading a book. It was by Annie Jacobson called the phenomenon. She was talking about when the CIA and intelligence agencies began to discover some of these um, substances and really was uh, total, you know, no context within the culture about how they're being utilized. No, just like uh, a belief that, that some of those altered states could have real merit to some of the, the things that they were pursuing. So it's interesting, the extraction of those practices and, and honestly looking at some of the things when Pentangeli talks about the cities, you know, one of the things that's occurred to me is it seems like in Western tradition, when folks have even recognized that psychic functioning is real, there's been an extraction. People have gone in and kind of taken practices and uh, they've uh, extrapolated them away from the spiritual connotation to talk about what is the utility of this thing that we can do, which to me almost seems like a complete inversion. <laughs> you talk about, okay, if we do these spiritual practices and we're in alignment to who we really are, 
suddenly we have um, the emergence of the ability for, to perhaps see through time and space. Um, and then you have the idea of like, oh, that's great. <laughs> we'll come in, we'll appropriate that. We don't need the rest of the stuff. And it's interesting to me, I don't know if you have thoughts on it, but uh, I've talked to several people and I have to wonder for those of us who are engaged in like psychic work, do we not suffer to some extent? Because uh, when you take away, you, you take this one slice of, of, of something, uh, it feels like it doesn't give us any of the history, tradition, the deep, rich, actual meaning of why you're engaging in these things. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it seems very, it seems like there's several instances of that, both with psychedelics and, and side practices where people have really cut part of it out <laughs> and then left out the rest of the conversation about about how these things actually are, are integrated into who we are. Yes, undoubtedly that the contingent of, of people exist. I do think there's also people who do the medicine or do remote viewing and it awakens them into the reality of oneness and the, the, the maybe they wouldn't call it a pure consciousness event, but they get very unitive experiences. So yes, I definitely think both um, is happening and it goes back to perhaps what I was saying about the coherence or the incoherence. So if you do sort of extract it and try to use it, like let's just say psychic abilities for like black magic or for something more shadow focused, now you're potentially in the evil or the dark again. So now it's going to become incoherent. And in the bigger context of living in, in alignment, with the totality of reality instead of what you're egoically co-opting that tool or that skill for to send bad vibes or, or, or something uh, destructive out into the world. Um, and, you know, Patanjali did warn in, in chapter three, where he talks about the cities, he, he is clear to say, the city should never be sought after just for the sake of it, like, because that's going to also set you back. So for yogis who are, you know, studying the full path, that knowledge definitely would be brought forward to them. Yeah, I can't, I don't even want to hang on to the cities because um, that's now going to send me into a sil another silo that I'm just going to have to deconstruct at some point. Egoic issues plus you know, modest superpowers may not be the, the most healthy thing. To have to get. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, so I'm curious um, what your thoughts are. Is it possible, you know, if you enter in these unit of experiences, and this is a question that uh, I'm going to try. I don't know. I am going to mispronounce this, but you talk in your book about, I have no idea, Kavala? Kavala? How do I say how uh -huh. You talk about like this, this, Patanjali's um, pointing to almost this, I don't like a spiritual singularity, right? So this point in which uh, it seems like he doesn't even get into an elucidation. Um, but I think you kind of, you kind of point to it's, it's almost an invitation to experience just like an invitation that we see through the practices to begin to uh, see, you know, that um, the practices hold merit. We can see that things are not that, and I think you're, you have a fundamental point that it's not, you're talking about the evolution of consciousness, that consciousness itself is not changing, but um, there's, there's a shift that's notable. So when we talk about that and we talk about Kavala, what, what are your perceptions about, and can, is that something that you can arrive at and just stay at? 
You know, if, is it something that there's a sage somewhere that just is existing in this continual state of complete alignment with and, and full acknowledgement of who they are? I would say, yes, you can rest in it. Um, I don't know. Would that mean that you would have to have all in his terminology, it would be the samskaras would they would all have to be cleared. Yeah, I don't want to say in an ideal world, but yeah. The, the, the just the, the some scars are like the idea of uh, would it be from the Indian traditions of like uh, your past lives and things that are, are carried forward. Is that is that is that correct? Things that are causing the the suffering that are causing the mind to move and its habit patterns and its imprints is basically what some scars mean. It it definitely maps to what Jung would call complexes. Um, and yeah, I think by, by the time you're at the end of chapter four, it potentially is really pointing to that, that you would have cleared out those those imprints of suffering and you're resting upon yourself. Um, but in those last five sutras towards the end of the book, you know, there is some leeway there where you're, you're, you know, Dharma mega Samadhi, like you're, you're reaching these places of absorption and Samadhi. And if anything comes along, you know, you just go back and do the practices again. So you can really be taking a fairly good, comfortable seat and still have some remaining residue to clear um, where you're not really getting thrown off your center. You know what the signals are, the red flags, if you will, or whatever uh, happens in your body. Um, but because you're so far, if you will, along on the yogic path at that point or so sort of yoked already to the process of yoga, you're in it. You're really um, he, at the end of chapter one, the Ritambara Prajna. Um, it, it, basically, it's the imprint. I, I say you don't go back from it's this truth bearing wisdom. So once you once you have uh, attained that, you know, you you, you understand it's pure consciousness is the reality and it's non-dual and um yeah i i really can't speak for you know because now what's coming to mind as i say all that is you know over and over and over again people have been disappointed by gurus that come out of india and you know they teach this stuff so well and then all of a sudden they're sleeping with their students and so yes, I'm sharing what I'm sharing, but I want everybody to keep, you have to keep your discernment. You, like that is just, that's maybe one of the teachings that we walk away with is like the radical discernment. Like you, you always, yes, trust, um, but never give your power away. Never, guru is within. Do not give your power away to a master that's outside. Like receive the teachings. Uh, but just, you know, you have to, you have to be aware, stay aware. Am I projecting onto this master? Right. And, and so you're all continuing, make sure, making sure you're doing the work. I hope that's answering your question. No, so, that was a, that was a beautiful cautionary note. If you look at some of the things that have happened, <laughs> I mean, it reminds me, I'm, I'm no, no scholar in English, but I think in Buddhism, there's a, uh, there's a saying that's like, you put no, put no head higher than your own, but the idea is like, the teaching is within that it's your self pursuit. Uh, but I always wonder to your point, like somebody who might sit in that realization continually, I've often wondered, like, if I, would I recognize them? 
And uh, in my own experience, I had uh, growing up, uh, there was one individual who was not like a, a preacher or a minister. And he was he was the gentleman who held the door open. So I grew up in the south, went to this church. But the gentleman who would greet people at the door would emanate uh, a radiance of love like that was it wasn't just in his facial expression. It, it would leave me wondering, like, what is it about this man? It often made me wonder, like, if there's sages, if sages are walking among us, you know, would we know it? Would we uh, uh, would we see that uh, the coherence and the alignment that they have? And, and would it be uh, causing that sensation? So I wish I'd been around maybe more uh, enlightened spiritual teachers. But um, it was it was quite an experience as a child just being around somebody who had that palpable brilliance and feeling of just um, unconditional love that would emanate from him. Um, so you talked about in that context, you talked about, I think, the heart chakra and, and the, the relevance of the heart chakra uh, and whether or not we purport that the heart chakra exists or not. But, you know, that um, the heart and and the, the condition of the heart is something that's really important to our alignment to be able to understand who we are and have that that perception. Um, is there as you look at your practices and what your experiences are, I think you talked about breath work being really important to be able to help with that. But is that something you see is absolutely essential to walking the path in Pentangeli's uh, philosophy to to be able to have that realization? I do. That 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 um, concentration and meditation and absorption into the heart center, you come to know the mind. I, yeah, to realize that to has still the mind and and be in an open heart. Um, yeah, absolutely essential. And if I could link it again to current day science, I don't know if you've ever heard of the HeartMath Institute out of Northern California, um, probably close to the Institute of Noetic Sciences up in that area. Uh, their research, again, speaks to the coherence, to the heart rate variability. And, you know, um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I can't... Uh, maybe rattle off all that they've done at, at that instant at the HeartMath, I think it's called Institute, but, um, but that's modern day science. That's I, I think also pointing to what Patanjali is, is speaking to drop the mind down, like silence it, drop it down here. Breathe, slow down, really kind of perceive out of this center, you know, and, um, and reality can change if that's not the way you know how to go about living. You know, if you're mostly, you know, con constructing. Um, but I, I, I absolutely do. Um, compassion isn't a term Patanjali uses. Um, And, and it is kaivalya. It's not moksha, so it's not liberation. But yes, to rest upon oneself, a hundred percent. That heart center has to be opened. Has to be in balance. The breath has to be flowing, flowing really well throughout the whole system. Like there's no way to game the system. That's the genius of what yoga teaches. You you will never. You mean I can't buy a class and just sit down for thirty minutes and it's <laughs> come on. Yeah, you can't you can't cheat the system because the, the the right the reality again it it's sitting inside it itself. So if your ego goes to co-opt it, something else is going to go offline. 
and yeah, it's that alignment. So when when you when you think about um, practices and practice, the concept that that you know the this is work, right? It's not something you have to have dedication to a path. You have to have dedication to like as you look at your schedule, like where have you put time in your life for spiritual refinement, right? Um, this you know I'm kind of reflecting my own struggles sometimes with time management as as I look at um, everything in my life, but. You know, it's interesting to me, you have Pentangeli in his prescriptions. And then it, it, this, is, this is somewhat of a curiosity item for me, but also I think it pertains to maybe some some Western ideas. But you also talked about Jung and, and Jung had practices. You know, I don't know the complete origin of his. I think it was you talked about his black book, but you had this. I think you talked about it was um, active imagination. Jung was Jung was experimenting to try to develop. Maybe I think you talked about he wanted almost to develop a yoga system out of Christianity and and. And, and see that emergence. But what, what what were active imaginations for for Jung? Oh, that's his whole red book. And if you haven't uh, ever explored that, it's a total treat. Um, yes, his whole years, especially after his break with Freud, his confrontations with the unconscious and uh, his guide Philemon. And um, he would, um, you know, in his dream state and, and, but also in these active imaginations would go and have conversations and, and gain guidance, uh, from his spiritual teacher, Philemon. And, um, there definitely is evidence that Indian teachers have also been taught by gurus who have crossed over. Young was really excited when he saw that research. He was like, it made him at peace that, oh, wow, I, I can have a disembodied guide, basically. Um, and, 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 and again, that's all sort of for potentially, you know, um, all well and good because again that's what you could almost say ishvara is for mm. patanjali um but patanjali takes it just a, a a step further into that silence so that there really is that stilling of the mind and that those dialogues come to rest upon themselves that one is satisfied with, uh, if I could say truth with a capital T, um, and then one comes to rest. And from that resting place, it would be arguable that that's where Tantra kind of comes into yoga at the end of the Yoga Sutras. Um, Patanjali speaks to Shakti, which is basically a feminine term. Um, so pure consciousness sitting in its true nature he uses a feminine terminology for that. So you could really argue that's where Tantra, Tantra meaning not, and again, what we've done in the West with Tantra, it's, you know, really emphasize the sexual elements of it and the Kama Sutra or whatever. Um, um, but, but Patanjali or Tantra really is this unitive, again, it's just, it, it, it's also unitive, but a very embodied unitive, not a otherworldly it's very much here in this realm in this body eating the peach making love to your lover but again from that very connected state and um yeah i i, I appreciate what you're saying about what i that's what i call the vertical connection 
and that you know everybody who says oh i don't have time for my practices those are the very people right who need the practices the most like five minutes even if it's just five minutes in the morning of a breath practice something you know cat cow or something where you move your body or some kind of prostration or squats or something that you do it in a way that's um prayerful if you will um that that vertical connection is everything in yoga we call it the root to rise your, your feet are planted on the earth and you're rising also up to whatever again whatever term you want to use it uh god goddess pure consciousness and then you know think about the balance cross not the jesus cross the balance cross and then the horizontal axis um is culture is family is uh, and you without without that vertical connection we just, we're so topsy-turvy on that horizontal axis um so anyway that's how I, that's definitely how i that's a, that's a beautiful teaching i love that and that's really easy to to express to people yeah that's how i utilize it with my clients like from from day one or whatever within the first few days really speaking to the practices and and stabilizing that vertical axis so you, you talked about some of the terminology having a, a feminine connotation, and I'm really interested in that because I know when we talk about gender, it, terms terms get us in trouble, right? So words get us in trouble. Uh, they can lead us off different paths. But, you know, oftentimes in certain states of consciousness, particularly of consciousness where you might receive information non-locally, it's a very um, receptive state. It's not, not that you're forcing your will. It's not that you're it's it's a very in some ways it, it almost feels like a certain humility and so when we take these different we, we can connotate different associations with masculine or feminine we're, we're using terms but it seems that differentiation does maybe some hold some value and also it's interesting to me when we talk about the the systems that have kind of developed in in our non-unitive world right where we're where we're uh in our materialistic that that oftentimes the feminine some of the things that connotate feminine in our culture seem like they're very much um oppressed like that there's very much for for women and young girls there's uh we look at the history of patriarchal society and do you think there's an intersection point with when we talk about some of the the terminology that we use about broader consciousness and maybe uh, a change of orientation or a change of the admixture of of two energies inside of, of individuals I agree that, that language is important and that we can get tripped up by it. Um, boy, what just came to me as you you said that was like, if you think about the silo as the masculine and then the feminine as the receiving as it's being brought down. So the penetration and the receptivity, the penetration, and the receptivity, that just came to me as you uh, were, were speaking. Um, I, I think our culture um, is in need of a heavy dose of balance towards the feminine and what the respect for earth, um, our intuitive capacities uh, beyond our intuitive capacities, clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience, um, and that's all receptive, like you're saying, there's a silence, there's a unity with, um it's it's the essence of to be um 
So yeah, I, I, I hope I'm getting towards your question there. But yeah, we definitely have a need for sure of balancing both. I don't I don't want to get too 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 technical and, and I, I don't even know that I can clearly speak to the brain science to it. Um, but if you think about left hemisphere as this logical, linear, linguistic, whereas the right hemisphere and all the sort of implicit knowings come up from the body up into the right hemisphere. It's again, it's pointing to that receptivity that you're talking about. Like neuroception is happening in our body. 24 seven, our organs are, you know, uh, talking to each other, if, if you will, and sending 80% of that information goes up into the brain. The brain only sends 20% of the information of motor coordination back down into the body. So we truly want to be receptive to a, a vast amount of material that we have completely cut ourselves off from. And again, matter, mat, feminine, so I do think you can, there is, when you break the language down, you can see these, you know, the, the terminology in gender. Again, it's, it's not my specialty, but I, when I look at it, I can see it. Interesting. I, I do this because I'm often talking about cauldron, the alchemical cauldron. So that's kind of <laughs> what I'm meaning when I make that gesture. I'm gonna drop it, drop it in the cauldron. I, I know that, um... Our, our gender constructs and you know, talk about growing up in the South for me, the, the constructs that I were, that I was handed about my identity that I'm incarnated in, um, had a lot of things that seemed to definitely not, uh, be very uh, useful to me in terms of understanding this, this side of, of quieting the mind of, of being receptive as opposed to, uh, what, what's celebrated sometimes in, in those, uh, cultural perceptions about masculinity. So it's interesting to me if, you know, if we think about, uh, to your, to your point about trying to bring forth a, uh, coherence, a greater coherence and, uh, more, more realization about what, um, to move people towards a greater realization of self and greater alignment with the individuation of, of broad consciousness, whatever term we want to use to our individual consciousness. It's, it's interesting for me to imagine what that society would be like, uh, and hard too, because we've lived in this kind of, <laughs> Our world is is so uh, upside down. It feels like in a lot of different ways. Uh, you're the optimist. I'm I'm going back into pessimism. I apologize. I'll, I'll do better. Uh, uh, that's why, uh, I'm asking uh, you advice and asking you questions. <laughs> well, you're though um, a colleague of mine, uh, Dan Levine, out of University of Texas Arlington, um, wrote a book. Mm. Uh, the, the title is eluding me, but basically we need emotion to make rational decisions. And, you know, what I feel like I hear you're pointing to is this phenomenon of big boys don't cry or man up or um, the fact that human emotion wasn't even studied until the 1990s or 1980s, even in the Euro-American really? culture. Like, I had no idea. That's yeah. amazing. That's yes. it, 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 so it just shows you the the dry period that we had, they, you know, emotions were seen to be so sort of superfluous. Um, now Jung would have never said that, potentially for sure would have never said it. They both point to affects, positive and negative affect as coding for particular human experiences. So again, to where the fact that yoga philosophy and psychology is marginalized in our culture, 
and seen as some sort of, you know, esoteric, you know, Indian thing versus in Jung for sure has been marginalized. Um, but now like with, with uh, my colleague, um, Dan Levine, and, and then there's been some also very famous books that have been written within the past couple decades that are full in affective neuroscience. So again, we see the movement forward, um, but yeah, you cannot make a truly rational decision if your rationality is cut off in just a supposedly separate supreme way of being. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the hand model of the brain, but you know, the neocortex, the cortex is sitting on top of the limbic system, which sits on top of the brain stem, which then, you know, falls right into the spinal cord. We need the whole apparatus to be integrated and running in this integrated way in order to really make logically consistent and truly rational decisions. So it's not good just to isolate one part of ourselves and then proceed forward like we're, <laughs> we're okay. learning as we go. Um, that's 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 awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you. So this kind of draws upon conversations I've had with others, and and curious if you had thoughts on this in the context of your own experience and your scholarship. But certainly, it seems like when people begin to follow some of the paths that you allude to, when they really dedicate themselves to. The idea of a spiritual refinement and quite honestly in my own experience just doing whatever whatever we say psychic psi stuff is that you begin to have we talk about synchronicities of these other experiences they begin to increase like the frequency of some of these things that challenge our perception a very limited perception you know a reality box of what we think you know uh, is contained inside that um, it seems like it's not just one thing that there, there seems to be several things that sometimes occur when when that happens and i'm curious if you have if you have thoughts on on why that is is it built into the system is it part of you know is, is the universe reaching out reaching its arms out to us it gave us one experience that led us to the path to sometimes it feels like there is some timing to it so you might have something that happened and you think i really don't understand how how the world works and then you might kind of fall away from that perception and then something else happens that kind of brings you back to it so i'm just curious what your thoughts are about well, I would say that when we are, let's just say in the incoherent bubble, the, the that's all running synchronistically too, but there's just so much noise, you won't perceive what the simultaneity of those events are versus when one when we're in the coherence. Now the heart is open and there is a sense of harmony and receptivity. And so then the music just starts to take a different tenor and tone and it's it's the beauty of the synchronicity. And so our, our, it, our minds play it up a little bit more. But I, I would say the synchronicity is ultimately happening at every level. It's the disharmony versus the harmony which makes the synchronicity really come alive. So when we're in harmony and at one with the universe verse or feeling our heart open, feeling receptivity, then the synchronicity is like, oh, it's delicious that everything's working in this way versus, um, yeah, the disharmony. With so the if, I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's it's really these things are are continually occurring. But when we're in, when we have this harmony and alignment ourselves, the, 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 if you will, the reverberation of the synchronicity, the, the import of the synchronicity becomes very different to us because we are in a very different position in relationship to it. Is that, is that kind of how you 
hundred percent. It's like, um, yeah, an orchestra playing on key or not. In that, yeah, that d dissonance or, um, yeah, incoherence, noise. Um, it's one particular experience versus the on-key harmony, synchronistic. It, synchronistic feels a little bit, uh, a lot of bit. Uh, feels very different, basically. Uh, Jung uh, said one time, "Everything is happening simultaneously in the mind of God," or, you know, it's that idea that um, it's the block universe, if you will. Um, the past and the present i mean and you know this from remote viewing it's like it, it you know everything's here and again whether it's just all the many possibilities um or firmly created futures uh but the oak is in the acorn so to speak lynn do you do you feel like we are at the inflection point you talk about excitement and and the um i think when you wrote your book you were talking about maybe when it comes to cognitive science and and how that at one point maybe there wasn't as much of a multiple disciplinary approach. And, and I'm not in that realm. I don't know how you feel about things, but when you talk to your colleagues, I mean, you, your book years ago, you were talking about remote viewing and acknowledgement of, of that reality. You were talking about unitive experience. In your book, you talk about the emerging scientific research about reincarnation. And you know, I think some people talk about, uh, I've heard people reference Carl Sagan in this context. So like Sagan's said like the two things that are still worth exploring, you know, or was uh, reincarnation and Psy. And, but you know, do, you, do you feel like that we're maybe at a point where in your sphere with your conversation with your colleagues and, and researchers and uh, folks who are doing that scholarship that has the, has the context of the conversation changed? Are you, are you feeling hopeful that, um, that questions are beginning to emerge and that the very orthodox kind of structure around scientific materialism, does it feel like that facade to you is beginning to, to, to be a little less reinforced? I wish I could say yes across the board. I mean, it definitely is in certain areas, um, but there are some hardcore Orthodox scientists who just won't budge. Um, but yeah, I would say over the course of my, over the past two decades in my academic career, um, either I wasn't exposed to, or it has flourished. Um, I do see that kind of like what I'm saying, Dr. Lisa Miller out of um, Columbia. Um, I mean, all the amazing work that uh, Dean Radin continues to produce out of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Um, the, uh, conference on consciousness that the University of Arizona runs every year. Uh, so many inspiring things come out of that conference every year. Um, so yeah, I definitely think there's reason for hope and I do, I do, I, I yeah. Is it, I don't know, I, I, I don't, there's so many of us on the planet, you know, like we've ballooned to how many, eight billion, even though they say there's gonna be a population contraction at some point, but there's a lot of us. So proportionally, I don't know what those proportions are because there definitely are, in the Euro-American culture, there's still some really hardcore um, Orthodox scientists, if we could call them that. Um, but 
I also see people really, you know, making headway for sure in the fields of parapsychology and affective neuroscience, uh, spirituality in the case of Lisa Miller. So yeah, I think we, I think we've got some yummy stuff going on for sure. <laughs> oh, that articulation, yummy stuff. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, what would your advice be, Leanne? So if you look at, you had this unit of experience that, that set you off and, and, on the, on the course, as you said, it radically change your orientation and trajectory in life. I know many people might hear that and want to have that experience themselves. So, but also um, <laughs> in my humble experience, you know, when I, when I first uh, read Pantanjali, um, I read it with a lot of commentary. And then I realized like, I'm mostly spending my time in the commentary. And when I came back after reading your text, I went back to Pantanjali and I was like, this is not beginner stuff. Like Pantanjali is complex. Um, not necessarily maybe the practices are complex, but Pantanjali doesn't seem like just like an entry level sort of, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe not the first text. So for people who want to maybe look at Pantanjali or em embrace some of these practices, there's so many diverse schools of of yoga. And wh where would you recommend that people kind of orient themselves if, if they were interested in, in developing themselves in this way? I love that you brought up there are so many diverse schools of yoga for sure. Um, bhakti, yana, karma, uh, raja yoga is Patanjali's yoga. Bhakti is the yoga of the heart that's singing, kirtan, um, yana yoga, the yoga of knowledge, which is the study of the texts as well. Karma yoga's acts in the world, um, service, uh, and they all work beautifully. Um, and there's also obviously in this country, lots of different yoga schools for asana practice. Um, at the heart, pranayama or the breath work to me is a great entry point. Um, And questions, you know, we could, I guess, you know, leave your 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 viewership with a few key points. It's like key basic questions. The the amygdala is in the brainstem, like they're they're coding from really, really early on. It's patterns, 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 patterns. And the core pattern is trust, don't trust safe unsafe and so for people to ask themselves just really radically or reflectively radically on and being really radically honest do i feel safe do i trust if that answer is yes there's a stable foundation there if it if that answer is no then one has to really really begin with the breath work to become safe and comfortable within one's own body. And again, depending upon where that person's located, are they in a safe house? Are they in a safe community? Uh, you know, like find safe spaces, find safe people, find safe communities. Cause it's about relationship. Like we, we have to bond with each other. We have to learn how to trust each other. We have to uh, build communities where we can be in our bodies and feel safe and not feel like we're running, constantly running from um, the fraud and the lies. And the, I mean, part of, part of yoga, that deep philosophical basis is ethics. 
it's, it's non-violence, it's truth, it's non-greed, non-stealing. I mean, that's the first, first limb of Patanjali's path. Um, so I, I would say that's the first question for people to really ask themselves. Do I feel safe? Was I born into a family that allowed me to come into my body and feel safe? Did they usher me into my into the culture and into the collective in a way to feel safe? Um, and to the degree that those answers are, are yes, you know, um, how does one how are you serving the world what is what is what is your alignment into you know your authenticity and how you serve the world through you know mothering children or you know whatever career whatever we're doing because our jobs all build the social structure and the social fabric so what jobs are we choosing is really especially in a capitalistic society every dollar we spend every job we choose we are building the culture Mm. Do we want a safe one or not safe one? And we have to keep trying to massage that. And, and especially in a democracy where we can vote people into office, um, you know, it becomes very sort of social justice oriented in a way because that's the bodhisattva or that's the idea of a yogi. It's not just about sitting on a mountaintop. It's here in the, being in the world. Um, so I don't know if that's a, the answer that you're looking for, but it's that breath work and that safety is really, really the foundation. Because without that, you're you're you don't yet have a stable base to really root down in. So that that that's the first, Wonderful. yeah, first basic line is right there. So you you're you you know you're you're. <laughs> You're down the road having walked the path. And, and to me, it feels like the path sometimes, you know, it gets narrower as the further you go. So I have a lot of respect when I talk to people. Uh, usually, you know, uh, you say like, uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom. And the wise people say, oh, I'm not wise. But, um, you know, it seems to me, too, the thing the thing I really appreciated in your book was even just highlighting the the commonality that, that Young and Tanjali had about if you're feeling certain feelings, that, that these are, are red flags. If you had this realization in some uh, you know, way. And, and so, you know, I, I try in my practice, if, if I feel kind of down, if I don't feel right, if I, if I don't feel safe to, to, to your point, but also like um, you talked about fear, like uh, a fearful feeling about things. So, you know, in my, in my burgeoning practice of, of um, trying to uh, be, be less ignorant, <laughs> but uh, I really, um, that's helped me a lot to be able to be considerably more thoughtful that maybe those things are not meant to be normative, right? If, if I was really uh, aligned to who I am is should I be always encountering some of these things or, or patterns of those things, right? As, uh, right. So, I mean, fear is built into the hardware. We, we want it. You, you want to be able to, this morning I bumped into a coyote in the middle of my city, like, and I had my dog with me, like, you know, I want to protect her. And, that's, that's a good fear. <laughs> yeah. I took her into like the archway of somebody's home and tried to like hide as I watched the coyote sort of look around. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. You know, you're in a crosswalk and a, a car starts barreling at you. You want to be able to like get to the other side. Like fear is built into the hardware. It's a primary process part of, of, of the brain. We want it. Um, we don't want to live there. Anger has its place. Rage has its place. You don't want to live there. Panic, grief, distress. 
have their place. The depression, it shows us the separation. Depression is really correlated to that panic, grief, distress line in affective neuroscience. So yeah, it's, it's a red flag. It's an indicator. Um, you want to be, we want to be able to read it and interpret it and move our energy along lines that are in service to our authenticity and our authentic power. The culture, especially the biopharmaceutical model, and that's not to say that medicines don't have their place at a particular time, but to numb a culture out through medicine, uh, I don't believe as a depth psychologist is the answer by any stretch of the word or as a yogi. Uh, experience with antidepressants in my family have not been the, the best thing, right? Um, in terms of long-term solutions to, to certain things. Um, so well, I like your note on, on uh, fear having its particular place. Uh, one time I, I went out and I, I thought, you know, this is where you get these big ideas about your spiritual practice. And so I went out in the woods to meditate at night by a waterfall. So deep in the woods all by myself. And so um, I was like, this is a really neat thing. I'm out here doing this, this sense of isolation. My ideas about, you know, uh, what one would do when you're following this path. And I did get into a very meditative state. But when I came out of it, uh, I was so in a different state. I actually walked up on a, a bear mama and her cubs. And it was really interesting because I don't think I would have actually gotten that close to it. I don't think I felt like humans normally do, right? <laughs> it's a kind of a fun, funny thing to say, but she kind of looked at me sideways like uh so i started to feel the balance point between this equanimity and like feeling my you know unity with things and also being very careful that i don't just like <laughs> uh shake hands with a bear but i managed to survive that one wow yeah yeah um so not a fair question to you at all but i really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your scholarship also i i noted um you know, I think your work is is obviously oriented in, in academic orientation, but I did note your footnote. I mean, that that what we're what you're talking about here with your path and and the, the work that you've done has a direct correlation to your own uh, spiritual path and some of the things that, that you've you've walked through. And so, as you look at where we are now and some of the challenges, you know, people talk about. Uh, always one megalomaniacal leader away from you know uh, a nuclear war or you look at um the environment and uh, we're all it seems like we're trying to find some solution to sustain us for some and so rather than this externalized view of like the new technology that's going to fix these problems or the um your work to me really speaks of a total that involution right of going back to the source of not that focus of the external not the egoic knowledge but really going to the heart of wisdom and going back to these beautiful scientific yogic traditions that sustained people for quite some time. So if you look at where you are, uh, how, how do we save the world, Leanne? So this, this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for you. <laughs> Small question. But you know, if you look, you, uh, I think you touched upon this, like people who have these experiences, it leads them in this path. So is that the key element? Like, do we need to be able to bring people, more to those experiences that that young avoided where he didn't want to to do the yogic practices or you know what is the prescription to i'm sure you have this solution right <laughs> well i would say this i don't have f fear of death i think that's one thing that uh maybe the pure consciousness event but also you know long-term meditation practice um i would say a couple things 
I would refine the question. We don't need to save the world. Mm. We need to save humanity, if anything. We need to save the species, possibly. <clears throat> but the Earth is going to be fine. She'll shake us off. She's got her own lifespan. You know, she's got beautiful, beautiful, amazing creatures. I mean, there's one more gorgeous than the next. Like, whew, makes me emotional, actually. She, she's, she's all set. It's, it's, we don't have to save her. We have to save ourselves from polluting her and, and killing our own habitat. I mean, any species that pollutes their habitat, their water supply and everything, like, you know, how intelligent do we really think that we are? Like, that, that's the reality check. Um, how do we go about doing that? Yeah, as a yogi and a, a, a Jungian, I do think it's person by person in the sense that we all have to be reflective. We all have to be aware of our own shadow. In particular, am I acting out of fear or not? Because again, fear is the thing that throws the interference patterns big time. Am I in my heart center? and you know open able to live in love or am i really afraid unnecessarily so it's one thing again with caution around a coyote or a truck barreling at you those are appropriate places for fear but are we chronically living from fear has the culture created that does the culture feed that is that where the culture wants us then we each have to do our job to become strong, authentically empowered, and create a different culture. And the, the world is made up of communities of people. And so really, um, I, I, that's where the salvation lies, is in each of us desiring and having the vision of something different. We have to be able to see it. And again, if we live in fear, it's very hard to visualize it. But when we're in love, we have a living in love, when we have loving people in our family, loving pets, then you can start to feel it. You can start to visualize it and you move out into the community. And, you know, if, if your community isn't already that, but that to me, that's, that's where we, what we want. If it, it, you know, that would be my answer to your very deep <laughs> Um, I don't think I've asked any well-formed or deep questions, but I do. Uh, you remind me of like a, a, a drop of water, the ripple, the you know, starting in the starting in yourself, starting in your family, the ripple to your community, and then um, yeah, that's. And of course, you know, I asked for the, the simple answer. Right? Where's the easy button that we can press? And um, but I, I love your per perspective too. It's it's very different to 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 think about. You're like, well, you know, save humanity or or. Yeah, there's all this. Uh, if you look at the change of, of the earth and the the, the constant uh, emergence and decline of different species, and the, um, it's a very different perspective sometimes when you're not perhaps not clinging to the frame of humanity either. Um, but that's it's a deep wisdom. It's it's a harder one for me to swim in the deep waters with you on that one. But um, Leanne, I really appreciate. Thank you so much for all your work. Thank you for your time and sharing your wisdom. I want to mention um, you also have, I think, some classes that you're teaching. I, I saw, I don't know if you want to mention, but if folks want to find out more about some of your work and uh, some of your books, uh, what's the best way for them to? Well, to definitely to come to my website. I, um, I don't, I'm not enrolling in any classes at the moment, but I am in development of, of several um, 
actually next year I'm going to launch a, a coaching program. Um, it'll be a two-year program to train people on transformational coaching. And uh, so my website, signing up for my email address and, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, entering your email address and, and uh, signing up like from my newsletter, which I uh, only send a few a year, but that would keep you somebody up to date um, with yeah, what offerings I have, if there's any retreats or whatever classes or, or programs I have, that's the best way. So, you know, I'm going to start, start my campaign to get people to convince you to finish the third act for the, because <laughs> it sounds amazing. So we're going to get a group together and, and, uh, and send our bulk email to you every now and again. But. Yeah. To get us to do it. And Hey, this gratitude goes both ways. Thank you so much for, um, you know, the, the work that you do and, what the work that you're doing in particular with the remote viewing and using your skills for that and and your own wisdom and inquisitiveness um and your willingness to to share and it's beautiful so well i think you touched upon uh talking about community but the the group of folks who are in the remote viewing are um are just amazing individuals that and in what they share and the knowledge and and also their inquisitiveness so um the, certainly that that group um has a lot of a lot of insight that's, that's sometimes useful. So, but Leanne, thank you, thank you so much for your time, and uh, thank you for your wisdom. And I'll talk to you later. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, let's see, how do I stop this thing? <laughs> this is the part we'll edit out. <laughs>